Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. This morning, we are going to continue our walk through the story. Uh, If you're new here, just really quick, the story is uh, basically the NIV version of the Bible. Uh, It's slightly condensed. Um, and it's, it's chronological. So the idea of the story is it's, it's about 32 weeks, and it's to see kind of the overview, the big picture of what God has done throughout history um, and what God is continuing to do in our day and age, how our stories intersect with God's big story. Um, so we are 23 weeks into that. Um, we are past the halfway point. Uh, last week we broke into the New Testament, uh, and, and so it's an exciting time to be able to share with you guys. Um, really this morning I want to... Um, extend an invitation to us. Um, We're going to look at chapter 23, which is the start of Jesus' ministry. Um, But as we hear, as we we are reminded of uh, the way Christ lived his life, what he did, what he said, um, I want us to hear an invitation to to respond to that, an invitation to uh, take part in what Jesus is doing um, and and to... uh, really respond to him with faith. And so um, before we dive into this week's stuff, just want to recap what, what we've seen so far. Um, there's three points we talk about every week um, that we've seen. Number one, can people recite them to me? It's been 23 weeks now. Uh, number one, God is creator. Um, we saw at the very beginning, God's the creator. God is sovereign. He's in control. Um, no one is his rival. Uh, he has created and he upholds and sustains all of creation. Number two, people are sinful, rebellious. We do whatever we can to, we we see whatever direction God is going, and we tend to head the other way. Um, At our very core, we are uh, sinful, flawed people who tend to rebel against God in in all that we do. Um, But at the same time as we are sinful, we are also, come on, no, close. Guys, this is, this is 101. Come on, guys. Have we been sleeping for 23 weeks? We are sinful, but we are also loved, right? Though we do not deserve it, we are loved. God, in his, his mercy and in his kindness, loves us and has pursued us and throughout the centuries has had a plan in motion to bring people back to himself, uh, to make all things new. Um, and there was also a third point, which I'm actually forgetting right now, Thanks. I kind of covered that one already. That's why I forgot it. Um, so, so those are kind of the, the quick bullet points that we've seen week in and week out, the things that have tied all these different stories we see throughout Scripture together. We've seen those three common themes. Um, but I want to ask us the question this morning, what is God aiming to do? We've seen he's called a people um, through Abraham. Uh, they turned into the nation of Israel, his descendants. Um, What was God aiming to do with Israel? There's one particular passage in Genesis we keep coming back to. Anyone remember what that might be? Genesis 12. And what's Genesis 12 say? Well done, Lorna. I love audience participation. Seriously. Thank you, thank you. Feel free to chime in at any point. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with it. If there's anything crazy, that's okay. Um, but I'd love for this to be a little bit more of a conversation this morning. Um, Genesis 12, God promises Abraham. Abraham, no right to any favor from God. He is from a pagan nation, just like um, so many other people. But God comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to make you a great name, and in your, or through your family, all families of the earth will be blessed. That's really important for us to get because it sets the trajectory for the rest of Scripture. Um, from there on out, through Genesis, through the Old Testament, the whole focus is on Abraham and on his descendants, on what God is doing, on how God is moving things forward to bless all the families of the earth uh, through Abraham's offspring. And so it's, it's really incredible because in the midst of this broken, rebellious world, God is at work. God is doing something. God is redeeming. Um, however, that being said, we've also seen that for the most part, Israel, Abraham's descendants, have failed in this, right? We, we see standouts. We see people who, like King David, who really have a heart for the Lord, and who, who fail, who sin and mess up and repent and turn back to God. Um, but we do see standouts, a few people like that here and there. But as a whole, we see that Abraham's descendants have really failed. Um, God had called them uh, to, to be blessed and to be a blessing to all the earth. Um, the tendency for the people of Israel, uh, like the tendency for a lot of us, uh, was to take God's blessing in and to hunker down and keep it to themselves. Um, they really were not the channel of God's blessing to the nations that God called them to be. Um, and so... Um, th- we see in, uh, particularly in the prophets in the Old Testament, a lot of pictures um, of, in, in exile, God has judged the people of Israel for their sin, for their rebellion, and for their failure. He's, he's sent them into exile and given their land to other people. Um, but we see the prophets beginning to glimpse, beginning to um, come back to the global purposes of God, the reason God called them. So we see in passages like Isaiah 61... Um, 61 verse 1, Isaiah writes this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified in them. They will build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations, rebuild the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. And it goes on from there to talk about um, how the nations will hear, the nations will see, the nations will come to Israel. Um, Really this uh, poetic picture that God's purposes from way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham God is still going to work them out through Israel, despite their rebellion, despite the punishment and the judgment um, that he brought on them. Now, the reason I bring this up, the reason I recap this, is because this is the world that Jesus was born into. Um, we, saw, uh, we saw the people of Israel came back, they rebuilt Jerusalem and things, um, but then there was really 400 years of pretty much silence, where we don't, we don't have... Uh, scriptural records of what happened, what God did, what God said. Um, we, we do have some other historical records and books and things, but um, it was 400 years of silence from God. Um, and then all of a sudden, like we heard last week, Jesus burst on the scene into a world that was pregnant with hope. Um, so the world Jesus was born into, about a half million Jews live in Israel. Um, another three and a half, four million spread across uh, the rest of the known world. 
And, and the Jews, because of prof, uh, passages like we saw in the prophets, they, re, they know who they are. They, they haven't forgotten that they're God's chosen people. They haven't forgotten that God called them for a purpose. Um, and they're ready. They're waiting. They're looking forward to the day when God is going to come and make good on all his promises. They're waiting for God to act with, with power. Um, they're waiting for God to come in judgment on uh, the Romans and these different nations that have ruled over them. Um, they're excited. They're anticipating God acting to save his people, um, to, to restore and renew creation. They're waiting for it. Um, but the question is, how do we live until that day happens? Um, and so we see in the New Testament a lot of different groups of Israelites who all live in different ways, who all have different strategies. This is how we should please God. Um, we see people like the Pharisees who really um, emphasize religious uh, cere- ceremonial purity. Um, so maintaining a, a separation between the, the average people and the pagans and, and us. We need to stay pure um, so that we will please God and eventually he will act like we want him to. Um, we see the Sadducees also a lot in scripture. Um, the Sadducees, they were really the, uh, the ones who worked together with the Romans. So they worked within the establishment uh, through political means, through religious means, uh, to uh, really get power for themselves, but also hoping that as they did so, uh, God would act, God would come in power, God would come in wrath uh, and would establish his people. Um, we also see the Zealots, uh, Simon the Zealot, a disciple of Jesus. The Zealots were the terrorists of the day. Um, they wanted revolution. They wanted anarchy. They wanted to go to war, get rid of the Romans once and for all, um, and set up a free uh, Jewish state. Um, the last one we see is the, uh, I might mispronounce this, the, the, uh, the people of the Qumran community. Um, that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so these were people who really took the separation thing to a whole other level from the Pharisees. And they went and lived in caves, lived in the wilderness, said, we can have nothing to do with the world around us. It's all shot, and we can't interact with it. So let's pull back and hunker down um, and just wait for God to show up. Um, so we see all these different Jewish groups that have this different way of living, uh, but they all have the same hope, ultimately, that God's going to come, he's going to judge the Romans, he's going to uh, bring freedom for his people and bring them all back to Israel, um, and eventually uh, he's going to make good on all his promises in the Old Testament. Um, so real different ways of living, but a common hope, um, and they also had a common hatred for uh, their oppressors. They had a common hatred for the Romans, uh, for uh, all these different empires that had ruled over them throughout these, the hundreds of years of silence. Um, so there's really a thirst for vengeance in the Jewish people. Uh, they're, they're not happy with the status quo, and they want to see um, everything upset. They want to see everything change. Um, this is the world that Jesus is born into. Um, this small, helpless babe born in a manger, um, but as he's born, uh, there is a lot of fanfare, a lot of news, um, they say things like, call him Jesus because he will deliver his people from their sins. Um, of this baby's kingdom, there will be no end. Um, a lot of great promises are made by angels and messengers from God around Jesus' birth. But then he goes and his family moves to Egypt. And Jesus grows up, at least for a few years, as a refugee in a foreign country. Um, not a promising start for a young, budding king with all these great promises. Grows up as a refugee in a foreign land. Finally moves back to Israel. Grows up in this backwater hick town called Nazareth, um, where no one expects anything good to ever come out of Nazareth. 
Um, not the greatest place to come from. Doesn't look great on the resume. And then for about three decades, everything goes quiet. Great promises are made, but we don't know what happened. Um, Jesus apparently didn't do anything that really stood out, made him seem special. He was probably a great kid, and his parents probably loved him because he was without sin. Uh, but beyond that, um, we don't really know. It's, God's word is quiet. History is quiet. Jesus doesn't show up anywhere. And so, great promise at the start, but for 30 years, it's quiet. And 30 years is a long time. But then, out of nowhere, this crazy-looking dude named John appears, dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and honey. Um, he appears with this uh, revolutionary message to the Jews, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is what the Jews were waiting for. He, he didn't have to define what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God meant, because it's what the Jews were all looking for. They were waiting for someone to say, the kingdom of heaven has come. It, it, it's finally time. And so the Jews begin to flock to him. And we see that uh, it's right at the beginning of this chapter 23, if you have your story uh, books. Um, it's, it's really in all four Gospels. We see John the Baptist appear on the scene. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just giving us the paraphrase, the overview. Um, but John appears and says this, and people begin flocking to him. Um, God's kingdom is finally here. Um, and as people come to him, they do two things. They confess their sins, and they're baptized in, in the River Jordan. And I want to draw our attention to that. Um, they're, not, they're not coming to John to confess their sin and to be baptized because they hope that someday after they die, they'll go to some faraway magical place called heaven where everything will be great. Um, the Jews are coming to, to John. They're flocking to him, confessing and being baptized in preparation for this kingdom that he says, it's here. They're flocking to him to, to prepare themselves for the, the king that is about to appear on the scene. Um, and and for, for the Jewish people, um, throughout Scripture, really, and even today, um, property, uh, geography, is very important. It's very symbolic. God made promises to Abraham about uh, the promised land. Um, geography is always important. And so it's not coincidence that John is baptizing people in the River Jordan. If you remember way back in the Old Testament to Joshua, after 40 years wandering in the wilderness, they come to the River Jordan, and, and as they pass through the River Jordan, it's a sign that finally God's promises to the Israelites are becoming true. They're finally entering the promised land. After 40 years in, in the desert, things are looking up. God is finally delivering. Um, and so it's not coincidence that John goes and starts baptizing in the Jordan. As people come to him and they confess their sin, and they're being baptized again in the Jordan, it's, it's like a symbolical restart for the people of Israel. Like we, are, we are cleansing ourselves, um, and we're, going, we're ready now to take up this mission uh, that God has given us. We're ready for the king to come and to lead us and do our, our God-given uh, mission, to our God-given task. And so um, it's, it's very important that John does it there. Um, but one day, someone special shows up. And John, as he's standing there baptizing, sees this guy, his cousin, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world. Um, and, and Jesus enters on the scene. And although he, he is without sin and he needs no forgiveness, Jesus is baptized. And John puts up a little bit of a fight. Um, he says, I need to be baptized by you. You're, you're the sinless one. You're the Savior. Why should I baptize you? 
Um, but we see Jesus insists. He says, it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness that I get baptized. And really, as Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, he is symbolically, he's identifying with the people of Israel. So their mission becomes his mission. Their task becomes his task. And as the Savior, as the King, he's taking that on himself, saying, this is my responsibility. I'm, I don't need forgiveness from sin, but, but I'm with you. I'm one of you. Um, he's, he's taking their task upon himself. Um, if you flip forward another page or two in the story, you'll see that uh, the Holy Spirit empowers Jesus then. He descends on him and stays on him. And then the Spirit leads him out into the desert for 40 years, or 40 days. Um, the Israelites spent 40 years in the desert, failure after failure after failure. Um, it was really because of their lack of trusting God that God said, all right, you're going to spend 40 years in the desert. Um, and again and again, they sin, they rebel, they, they uh, worship idols, all these bad things. The Spirit sends Jesus into the desert for 40 days, uh, where Jesus is tired and weak and tempted, but he succeeds. He, he stays true. He stays obedient to the Lord. Um, Satan comes and, and tempts him various times, um, but Jesus doesn't fail. So, so Jesus identifies himself with Israel, and then where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. The, the king steps into their place. He takes their task upon himself, and he shows uh, in a symbolic way that um, where the people fail, he succeeds. So then Jesus comes uh, back, and he really begins his ministry. Um, and that's what we're going to look at for the rest of the time today. Um, he begins his ministry, matches the same message John had. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, the kingdom of heaven has arrived, so repent. Make yourself ready. Um, it says that he goes preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And so this, this idea of repent today, it's, it's got these negative connotations. Like, repent. We always see the crazy people in the movies with, you know, Judgment Day and a sign written on cardboard. Repent. Judgment is coming. Um, repent's got these negative connotations. But really here, when Jesus comes on the scene... He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. This is what the people of Israel want to hear. Um, prepare yourselves, because God's about to act. So he goes around preaching the kingdom of God is here. And then he goes about around showing that the kingdom of God has actually shown up. Um, he heals lepers. Uh, this is all in this chapter of the story. I hope you've read it. If not, take the time today. Um, he heals lepers. He heals paralytics. Um, he casts demons out of people. Um, again, just demonstrating the power of God is here. The kingdom of God has come. Because the hope was that God was going to restore creation, restore his people. He was going to make everything new. Jesus, in his works and in his, his teaching, he demonstrates God is doing that right now in the midst of you. He, he's here in the middle of you, making things new. A taste of heaven on earth, or, or life as it should be. The kingdom is here. Uh, sickness and death and demons these things have no more hold because the kingdom has come. That's the message that Jesus came with, and that's, that's what his works showed us. It's funny, though, because the Jews were looking forward to this king, but then he shows up and he's nothing like they expected. Um, and we've had stuff like that happen in our own lives, where we have a, an idea of what something should look like, and it's totally different. Um, that's exactly what the Jewish people got. All those different factions, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots, all these guys, they had no idea how to handle him. But they all agreed, we don't like this guy. Um, he's not doing what we want. He's not exactly what we expected. We wanted him to come in and, you know, on a white horse and kick the Romans out of here and set us up as top dog again. Uh, 
Jesus doesn't quite look like that. Instead of, of destroying the enemy, Jesus says, love your enemy. Instead of uh, taking back what's yours from the enemy, Jesus says, if he asks for your cloak, give him your tunic as well. Um, if he asks for your shirt, give him your coat as well. Um, that would be a modern-day translation. Um, this is not what the Messiah is supposed to look like. The Jews don't get it. He's, he's not fit in the mold. Um, this guy, this Jesus character, even goes and he's, he's eating with sinners, tax collectors, these, these normal common folk, or these, these people who have betrayed the Jewish people, the Jewish cause. Jesus goes and to eat a meal with someone in that day was to, to basically show your friends. There was a real sense of uh, having time at the table together meant that uh, there was a common bond, that you were accepted, you were welcome in, uh, I approve of you. Uh, and so Jesus goes and eats with sinners and tax collectors, and you, you don't do that if you're the Messiah. That's not allowed. And so the Jewish establishment's in an uproar because Jesus is totally breaking the mold. Um, but I want us to take a closer look at uh, just one of these stories. So if you've got the story book, uh, turn to page 327. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to John chapter 4. Um, I am going to read this out of my Bible, uh, which is English Standard Version. Um, and so that's, those are the kinds that are in the pews in front of you. So if you want that same version, feel free to grab one of those uh, and check it out. I'm just going to um, really read through this story here, and we'll make a few comments here and there as we go along. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but I want us to see how this Messiah, this guy who claimed to be bringing the kingdom of God, uh, I want us to see exactly how he lived and how he interacted with, with people. And so this is what John says, John chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And that's around noon. So this is when it gets interesting. Verse 7, chapter 4. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John gives us a helpful editorial note. He says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Um, just in case, like FYI, Jews and Samaritans don't mix. It's oil and water. Um, so that's the first thing I want to point out for us. So Samaritans are really, um, they're kind of like half-breeds in the Jews' eyes. Um, you can read in 2 Kings 17, like, where the Samaritans come from. Uh, the nation of Israel is exiled, and the Assyrian Empire, who conquered them, brings in these people from all these different countries and resettles Samaria. Um, but God sends lions because these people aren't worshiping God. Um, and so Assyria says, okay, let's send a, a Jewish priest there uh, to teach them about the God of this land, um, and, and then the lions will stop attacking them. Um, and so they send a priest. Um, and in 2 Kings 17, it says that uh, they listened to the priest. They uh, worship, began to worship the God of Israel, but they also worshiped their own gods. Um, and so there's really this mixed bag of uh, religions, of worshiping different gods. 
Um, even uh, racially, there's, there's differences uh, because all these different countries were, were sent there to resettle it together. Um, so the Jews really look down on the Samaritans, and there's all these interesting historical things that happen. Uh, like right before Jesus is born, the Samaritans uh, sneak into the temple and really deface it. Um, they do these things that really upset the Jews, and they did, really didn't like. Um, so the tension is really high. Um, there's, there's a lot of animosity between the Jews and Samaritans, even though they live right next to each other. Um, so, so John helpfully tells us, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, they don't mix. They don't interact. Um, another thing to point out, um, this woman is coming alone at noon to get water. Um, I don't know if you've been to the Middle East. It's hot, um, like real hot, desert hot. Um, I had the pleasure of going there back in the day, and we slept on the roof because it was hot, um, and they don't have air conditioning much. Um, it gets really hot, and so, uh, and they don't have cars. They don't have things like that in these days. Typically, you'd go to get water, you'd pull it out of the well, and then you carry it back to town. Um, that's hard work when it's very hot. Uh, and so to avoid killing yourself unnecessarily, um, you don't go at noon, the hottest time of the day. Uh, you go early in the morning when it's still very cool, or you go towards evening once the, the heat of the day has begun to pass. Um, but we see that this woman, um, she comes at noon and she comes all alone, uh, which again would signify to us uh, something's not normal here. Um, we, you know, we have these ideas about um, parts of the world today, maybe even parts of the states that are really like rough and tumble. You know, you don't go there alone. Uh, you, you lock your doors when you drive through that neighborhood. Um, or we watch movies about like this time of history, um, and we think, man, some of the stuff that happened was brutal. Um, like, I mean, wars, guns are horrible things, uh, but when you're fighting with swords, like slashing, like, it's just, it's a brutal time of life. Um, part of the reality, though, was that uh, a woman typically wouldn't go walking around uh, on her own and especially out to a well outside of town uh, because of bandits, because of robbers, um, things like that. It was just not a safe move. It was a very risky thing to do. Um, and so uh, John's cluing us in here to there's something that, that forced this woman to go alone at noon, the worst time of day, to go get water. Um, she, people didn't like her, apparently. She couldn't go with the rest of the women in the morning or the evening. So we see this woman is an outcast. Um, along with that, we see Jesus here makes himself vulnerable. Um, Jesus is totally God, totally man. It's a mystery. Um, if you have questions about that, ask Brian. Um, but Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is, is God incarnate. But we see in the book of John that um, Jesus is very much a man. He gets tired. He gets hungry and thirsty. Uh, he gets just exhausted. He weeps. He cries. He feels emotion. Um, we see here Jesus is in a, a place where he is very vulnerable. He's tired, alone, sitting on the well, thirsty, um, and there's really nothing he can do for himself there. He doesn't have a bucket. So he makes himself vulnerable. vulnerable. Um, a woman comes along, and uh, despite the norms, Jesus initiates conversation with her. Um, so a couple things that are still true to this day in the Middle East. Um, men don't talk to women that aren't their wives or, or family members. You don't do it. Uh, today, 2,000 years ago, you didn't do it. It's, it's not allowed. Um, I read one guy who was talking about this, and he said, for 40 years of living in the Middle East, never once did I cross this line. 
Um, you don't do it. When I was in the Middle East, uh, I was in Jordan, and we drove around the city of Amman, the capital, and it was the craziest thing, because on Friday nights, you drive around downtown, and you drive past these clubs and things, music blaring, people dancing, and you look inside, and it's a bunch of dudes. Because guys and girls didn't mix. Like it, You only intermix with your family. You only cross the gender line with family. Um, so the guys would go out dancing, and the women would stay home uh, like with the other women. Just the way it is back then, today. And so when Jesus initiates conversation with this woman, he is breaking a major cultural uh, norm. He's, he's breaking tradition. He's doing something scandalous here. Um, let's see what he does, though. He, said, he asked for water. She says, what are you doing talking to me? How are you asking for a drink from me, a Samaritan? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so, just to pause there, we see Jesus, they're kind of on different levels here. Um, Jesus is talking about this living water, um, drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. And the woman thus far has been a little bit like, hands off, dude, back off, Um, don't talk to me, you shouldn't be talking to me, you can't draw water, you're crazy. Um, But when Jesus here says, the water I'll give him will become in him, or I'm sorry, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again, all of a sudden the woman's ears perk up. Um, She says, give me this water, because then I won't have to come here to draw water anymore. Um, so once, it, it, it is, uh, once it's good for her, once it means, oh, less work for me, once it means uh, less uh, pain, maybe it means uh, less shame because she's not having to go to the well at noon anymore, um, then all of a sudden she's interested. All of a sudden she starts to respond. Um, but we'll see that this woman, they're really just still on two whole different playing fields. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. For salvation, I'm sorry. Worship, we worship what we know. <coughs> For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We see a couple things here. First off, uh, like I said, we see they're kind of on different playing fields here. Um, And so Jesus is talking about this living water. You'll never be thirsty again. Uh, It'll become a spring of water in you, welling up to eternal life. 
um, sounds to me like he's talking about something more than just physical water, right? Like this isn't normal. This isn't like Indiana Jones water that you're never going to be thirsty again. Um, so they're on different playing fields. The woman's like, oh yeah, I'd like water that would satisfy my thirst forever. Um, and Jesus is talking about something more, but she doesn't quite get it. Um, along with that, we see here, Jesus begins to take it more personal. He says, go call your husband and come here. Clearly, Jesus knows she doesn't have a husband. We see that. Um, he says, you've had five. Uh, the one you're with now, he's not your husband. Um, the woman immediately, though, changes the subject. So Jesus begins to go deeper. He begins to get things very personal, um, talking about the most intimate details of her life, her, her marriage, the, the man that she's with. And immediately the woman does an about-face and starts with these uh, random theological questions about where we should worship and, and who's right and wrong. Um, I know people like that. I've been that guy who things get to this point where it starts to get a little awkward or uncomfortable. So you drop some, like, question without an answer, right? Just some question that no one knows, but it'll change the subject. Um, or, if you've seen the Snickers commercials the last couple years, you pull out a Snickers, and it gives you some time, right, to think about what you want to say. That's exactly what this woman's doing here. She doesn't want to go there, so she stiff-arms Jesus, she, she pops a Snickers bar in her mouth, and she t- t- changes the subject, so we don't have to go there. However, look at how Jesus responds to her. He, he doesn't... Uh, keep pressing in on this relationship stuff. He doesn't get angry with her. He doesn't just shut her down theologically. He doesn't yell at her. He's patient with her, despite her, her attempts to change the subject, her attempts to uh, turn things. He's patient. He's kind. Um, the only other, really, two things I want to point out here. Um, Jesus says to her at the end, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In the book of John, this is the clearest way Jesus has revealed himself up until this point. And he chose to do it to a Samaritan woman who he shouldn't have been talking to for gender reasons. He shouldn't have been talking to her for, for racial reasons or religious reasons. He, sh- he shouldn't have done that because it would uh, defile him. He would be unclean uh, ceremonially. Um, so there's all these reasons he shouldn't have even spoken to her. But he chooses this Samaritan woman who is an outcast from her own people and says, I'm he. Like, you're going to be the one who receives the most clear revelation of who I am. I'm the Messiah. It, it doesn't get more clear than that. She talks about the Messiah. He says, that's who I am. What an incredible reality that God would come and choose the most unlikely people to reveal himself to. Amen. That's what we're seeing here. He's coming to the most unlikely person. We'll we'll even see a couple verses later. His disciples come back. The next verse, actually. His disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the disciples themselves, they don't get it. Like, Jesus, you shouldn't be talking to this lady. Um, But Jesus chooses to um, graciously reveal himself to her in the midst of her sin, the midst of her being an outcast that no one wanted to spend time with, no one wanted to be in relationship with, Jesus initiates a conversation with her and reveals himself to her. On top of that, um, we see here in this conversation this um, like progressive revealing. Um, so there's, there's an old church father, and this is what he says about the woman's reaction to Jesus. First, she disliked and heckled the rabbi. Um, at first, she, she refers to Jesus as a rabbi, a teacher. Um, she disliked and heckled the rabbi. 
then she was swept off her feet by the prophet. She, she's awed. She's shocked when Jesus says, I know you've had five husbands. I know you're living with someone now who's not your husband. She's shocked. She's swept off her feet. But in the end, she adored the Christ. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. I'm that guy. And this woman adores her. Let's see her reaction. Verse 28. The woman left her water jar. The whole reason she'd come out there. She leaves it behind, went away into the town, and said to the people, people who probably hated her, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Uh, There's a section there about uh, the disciples and eating and the bread of life. We're going to skip that. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said we believe, for we've heard for ourselves. We know this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so we see that this woman, not only does Jesus initiate conversation with her and reveal himself, uh, but she becomes the first, she really becomes the first preacher in the book of John, the first one to actually uh, believe in him and then to go and begin telling other people. Um, Jesus chooses the most unlikely people, uh, and this woman is, is a, a perfect picture of that. Uh, lastly, what are the effects of Jesus interacting with this woman? I just want to point out a couple. She goes back to town. She, she says, come, listen, come see this guy who told me all I ever did. And, and people who hate her, people who didn't want to spend time with her, um, they come out and they hear. And Jesus goes and he, he lives with them for two days, teaches them more. They all come to believe. And it, from what we can tell here, this is the last we see of this woman, but it looks like she's reconciled to her community. It looks like now all of a sudden, instead of being hated and being an outcast, She's, she's loved. She's the one who brought the message of the Savior. The, the very last verse is uh, the people talking to the woman. It's not just because of what you said we believe. Uh, we've heard for ourselves, and so we believe. Um, so we see where Jesus goes, where the kingdom of God comes and, and interacts with people. Um, we see outcasts are reconciled. Relationships that are broken uh, are made whole. They're, they're, they're brought back to life. Uh, barriers, barriers like with the Jews, Jewish Samaritan barrier, that had been a thing for centuries, 500 plus years. Where Jesus comes, where the kingdom of God shows up, those racial barriers, cultural barriers, they're no more. They're destroyed. They're torn apart because the kingdom of God crosses those things. Um, along with that, we find people believe and they find life. They find this living water that satisfies. This woman, why did she have five husbands and, and why is she living with another guy now? We don't know. She could have been a murderer. Who knows? Um, she, she could be um, an adulteress. Maybe she's sleeping around, and so that's why her husbands keep divorcing her. Um, we really have no idea about this woman besides what we see here. But as I read it, um, there's one thing I can tell. She's thirsty. Right? She's looking for something. There, there's something she's trying to find that she can't find, and, and her solution is to try to find it in men. She's looking for love. She keeps looking and keeps looking, but she's disappointed. She looks somewhere else. She's disappointed again, so she looks somewhere else. She's thirsty, but we can see as Jesus interacts with her, as she, he interacts with her community, they find life. They, they find this living water. They find satisfaction. Um, I'm, I'm willing to bet that this woman, um, 
this, this moment changed everything for her. Um, socially, uh, probably with the guy she's living with. Um, this, this changed everything because all of a sudden the, the thirst, the hunger that was deep inside her that was driving her to all these different men, all of a sudden that was met. So there wasn't a need to do that, those things anymore. She didn't have to go um, around to different guys to find satisfaction, to find meaning for her life um, because the kingdom of God had come. The kingdom of God had brought that satisfaction. Um, so I'm going to read one other story. This isn't in scripture, um, and I didn't come up with it, uh, but you might recognize parts of it, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Um, here we go. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she sees inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she's mentally rehearsed scores of times. She finally runs away. She'd visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth, youth group to watch the Tigers play. Newspapers in Traverse City reported in graphic detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in Detroit. So she concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. Maybe California or Florida, but definitely not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year, the man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium to be with her. She lives in a penthouse, orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives seem so boring, she can hardly believe she even grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair, with all the makeup and all the jewelry she wears, no one would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first signs of illness appear. It amazes her how fast the boss can become mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls, and he kicks her out on the street without a penny to her name. She still manages some work, but they don't pay much, and all her money goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is really the wrong word, though. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands begin to circle her eyes, and her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a cold little girl, lost in a frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled on top of her coat. Something jolts in her mind. And a single memory, a single image, fills it. An image of May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees all bloom at once, with her golden retriever running through the rows in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. 
She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with an answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time, she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus. I'm coming your way. It'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're there, I guess I'll just stand... If you're not there, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make the trip between Detroit and Traverse City. During that time, she realizes all the flaws in her plan. What if her parents were out of town and missed the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day and then called so she could talk to them? Even if they're home, they probably wrote her off dead a long time ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening, even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed warm by thousands of tires. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard with a, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City appears. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her whole life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're even there. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare for what she sees. They're in the concrete terminal. In Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters. Aunts, great-aunts, uncles and cousins, her grandmother, even her great-grandmother. They're all wearing party hats, blowing noisemakers, and taped across the whole wall is a huge banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech, Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her, though. Hush, child. We don't have time for that. There's no time for apologies. You'll be late for your party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. Sorry, I'm a mess. Um, guys, I read that story, and if you're familiar with the scripture, you'll see hints of the prodigal son there. But I read it, right after reading about this woman in Samaria, because there's a lot of parallels there, and because we can wonder what it looks like when the kingdom of God shows up. We can wonder what it looks like when Jesus shows up. And that's what it looks like. People who are broken, people who are lost, people without hope, who don't deserve anything, they find what they don't deserve.
That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Guys, that's what we've been called into. At the end of this chapter in the story, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the right one or was I wrong? Jesus doesn't really answer him. He lets him hang out with him for a little while. And then he says, go tell John what you've seen. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Words like that, even stories like this in Scripture, can seem really far away sometimes. They can seem kind of distant. It's hard to jump that cultural gap or jump that time gap to to 2,000 years ago and imagine what it's like. But this kingdom is still growing. It's still present in our midst. Um, They might have a photo. Uh, Last night, we had a party. We had 10 students over from Purdue Cal, and it's a mess. (laughs) But that's a little bit like what the kingdom of God looks like. Taiwanese and Chinese and Brazilian and American and blocks and spaghetti and John Wayne and a whole lot of crazy stuff. But the whole reason for parties like that is because of the hope that the kingdom of God has given us. And we want to see others experience that. So we'll close here. Um, Ushers, maybe you guys can... uh, Begin to pass the communion stuff around now. What exactly does the kingdom of God look like? It can be hard to say. But you know it when you see it. This world seems pretty dark sometimes, doesn't it? There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of just brokenness and Um, hurt and pain. And we can question and wonder why. They seem to be the the common denominator a lot of times, if you watch the news. And even personally, there's a lot of darkness. right? There's a lot of guilt for things that we've done. There can be a lot of shame. We do things that are shameful. We do things we're not proud of. There can be a lot of fears. Fears about what the future holds because the world is such a crazy place. But because Jesus came, because of the kingdom of God, we can take heart. John 1 says this, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Right in the middle of the darkness, the light shines. And right in the middle of a crazy world, the light shines and the kingdom grows. The kingdom lives and breathes. And God is at work. And the reason for it all, ultimately, is because Jesus, this guy who showed up and didn't fit anyone's expectations, didn't uh, meet what people thought a Messiah should look like, it's because within a couple years of meeting that woman in Samaria, he would go and hang on a cross, naked, bruised, ashamed, broken. And the judgment of God for for sin and for rebellion would be poured out on him. And then three days later, he takes his life back up. A new life, 
new, new hope, a life beyond the darkness, life beyond the guilt and the shame, a new chapter begins. That's what the kingdom of God is about. And guys, that's been extended to all of us, and, and hopefully you've met this Jesus and, and you've experienced this hope and this new life. Um, and that's why we take communion, because Samaritan women, outcasts, loners, unloved, they find hope at, at the table. They find hope in the kingdom. Runaway teenagers, they find hope. And guys, I'm Larry Barker. I'm the third of nine children. Um, my life is crazy. Um, and on my own, I am a proud, arrogant mess who doesn't think he needs God, who thinks he can do it all himself. I'm constantly trying to prove that I'm good enough for people to love me. Oftentimes, I feel lonely and have a hard time believing that people would want to be my friend. But at the table of God, I'm welcome and I'm loved. And that's a beautiful thing. So let's take this um, bread and this wine, or juice. Sorry, guys. Um, let's take this bread and this juice and... Um, let's take it and remember that the bread and the juice are for, for people who are broken. It's for, they're for people who are a mess, people who, who don't have hope in themselves, people who need grace. If that's you, take the bread now and let's remember Jesus' body broken for us. And let's take this juice and remember his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins and the dawn of a new day. Lord, we thank you that you give your salvation freely. Oh, Father, we thank you that we don't have to clean ourselves up to come to your table, but that you extend a welcome to anyone who would, who would come, who would trust that in Jesus is forgiveness and life and hope. And we thank you for a great Savior who was enough to uh, pay for where we've done wrong and who was powerful enough to take his life back and to, to bring a new chapter in history. God, we thank you that for each of us as individuals, we can find that new chapter and, and new hope and new life in Christ. God, I pray that where there is struggle with um, guilt and shame, where we don't see freedom in our lives, I pray that your kingdom would be expressed there. Lord, that we would find that freedom. We would find forgiveness and healing and wholeness. God, I pray even more than for us as individuals, that as a community, um, your kindness and your grace and your love would be expressed in our midst. Lord, you are not just gathering people individuals. You are gathering a people, a community, a church across the countries, across all time. And we long for that day when the kingdom will come in its fullness and, and everything will be made right. God, we pray you would stir a greater hope and a greater longing in our hearts. Lord, we pray that in the meantime, you would uh, enable us to live faithful uh, to your kingdom, to express a a kind of life that is, is a faithful picture of what your kingdom is like. It's for Jesus' name, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.